The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Learn more about the U.S. Access Board. Welcome to ACB Reports for April 2015. U.S. Access Board is an independent federal agency that in many ways is crucial to how people who are blind or who have low vision navigate the world, both physically and virtually. This year, attendees of the ACB Legislative Seminar learned more about the U.S. Access Board from its executive director. Note that certain hearings referred to during the following presentation will have already occurred by the time this program is heard. Here is U.S. Access Board Executive Director, David Capozzi. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Eric and uh, Kim, for inviting me. It's good to be back, and it's good to see some familiar faces. For those of you who don't know uh, a lot about the Access Board, I thought I would start off by um, giving you just a brief overview of our programs and activities. The board was established in 1973 under the original Rehab Act, so we celebrated our 40th anniversary just a little over a year ago. And we're the only federal agency whose primary mission is accessibility for people with disabilities. We're responsible for developing accessibility guidelines under the Americans with Disabilities Act, an older law called the Architectural Barriers Act of 1968, and the Communications Act for ensuring that buildings and facilities, all forms of transportation vehicles, except airplanes, and telecommunications equipment covered by the laws are accessible to people with disabilities. We're also responsible for developing standards under the Rehabilitation Act for electronic and information technology, what we're now calling information and communication technology, procured by federal agencies, commonly known as Section 508, and standards for accessible medical diagnostic equipment like exam tables and mammogram machines and CAT scans and what have you. We provide training and technical assistance on all of our guidelines and standards and on a variety of other accessibility issues. We maintain a small research program uh, that develops technical assistance materials and provides information needed for our rulemaking and we enforce the Architectural Barriers Act. That was one of our original mandates and we still do that to this day. So if you ever have complaints about federal buildings, be it a post office or a VA medical hospital, please file a complaint with us. I wanted to go over some of the rules that we've already completed because I'm going to talk about four rules that are underway that have direct relevance to you and your lives. We've been very active in rulemaking really since the ADA was passed in 1990. A year after that, in 1991, we issued the original Americans with Disabilities Act accessibility guidelines. And then we supplemented that with requirements for state and local government facilities in 98, children's environments in 98, and play areas in 2000, and recreation facilities in 2002. 
Also in 91, we issued accessibility guidelines for all forms of transportation vehicles, and I'm going to get to that later on because we're updating those. We issued our Section 255 guidelines in 1998 for telecom equipment. We issued our original Section 508 standards in 2000, and ACB was a member of the advisory committee that helped develop those. We updated our ADA accessibility guidelines in 2004, and ACB was a member of our ADAG review advisory committee that helped us create the current ADA and Architectural Barriers Act accessibility guidelines. And I just wanted to touch on a couple of provisions that uh, are in our current accessibility guidelines that are relevant to the work that you do and hopefully affect the work that you do in, in everyday life. We have requirements for protruding objects. So when you're walking down the hallway, you don't get hit by a drinking fountain or other things that are sticking out from the wall. Elevators have a number of provisions, visible and audible signals at hoistway entrances, uh, floor designations and tactile characters in Braille on both the jams of the uh, elevator hoistway, audible and visible car position indicators, signage, you know, signage throughout um, public accommodations and, and other facilities, automatic teller machines. Our original requirements were for more of a performance-based requirement which didn't really go far enough and in 2004 we updated that and made them much more specific and now have a requirement for machines to be speech enabled. Two-way communication systems are required to provide both audible and visual signals and then of course detectable warnings at transit platform boarding edges and those are required along the full platform edge. I wanted to um, talk just a little bit about our rulemaking authority so that you know not only what we do but what we don't do. So our guidelines for the built environment apply primarily to new construction and alterations, not to existing facilities. And under the ADA and Architectural Barriers Act, our guidelines are not enforceable until another agency takes the step to adopt them. And there's six agencies that have to do that, four under the Barriers Act and two under the ADA. And under the ADA and ABA, our authority extends only to fixed elements. So, you know, visual alarms or uh, entrances, changes in level, carpeting, but not to issues like sign language interpreters or service animals. One of our staff has a favorite saying, if you take a building and turn it upside down and shake it, those things that fall out are not us. Other agencies have authority over non-fixed or freestanding equipment. So it's not that it's not regulated, it's just not regulated by us. For a small agency, and by small I mean we have 28 staff and a budget of about $7.5 million, we have seven rulemakings that we're currently working on. One is information and communication technology, which I'll talk about. Another is transportation vehicles, updating that, I'll talk about that as well. A third is what we call public rights-of-way and shared use paths, medical diagnostic equipment, passenger vessels, self-service transaction machines like kiosks and um, other types of self-service machines you would see at maybe a big box store or at a grocery store. And then um, updating our rail vehicle guidelines. So those are the seven that we're currently working on. They're in various stages of development, but I'll talk about four of them. 
So information and communication technology. As Eric said, last week, February 18th, we made our proposed rule available on our website. And the rule will be published in the Federal Register this coming Friday, February 27th. So we essentially gave you a, a preview before it came out. We gave people nine days before it was published in the Federal Register. Primarily we did that because we wanted to give the public enough time before we do some hearings. I'll talk about that in a second. But as a way of background, in 2000 we issued our original standards. And as I said, ACB was a member of that original advisory committee that helped us develop those standards. In 2006, technology changed. You know, just in six years from our original standards of 2000, smartphones really didn't exist in 2000. But in 2006, they were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. So we created an advisory committee to give us advice on how to update the standards, as well as how to update our telecom guidelines at the same time. Because the telecom guidelines have requirements for telecom. Section 508 standards had requirements for telecom as well. We wanted to make sure that those were the same and that the Section 508 standards uh, addressed other things as well. So we, we had this advisory committee. 41 organizations served on the committee. ACB was, again, a member of that one. The committee gave its report to us in 2008. We did two advance notices of proposed rulemaking, one in 2010, one in 2011. And then, as I said just uh, last week, we issued our proposed rule. It'll be open for 90 days, so the comment period will end on May 28th. And it will revise and update our standards for Section 508 and our guidelines for telecommunications equipment covered under Section 255, both in one rulemaking. As I said, we're doing that so that there's consistency across the platforms and across telecom requirements. The rulemaking will consist of six different chapters. The first two chapters are what we call scope and application chapters. And there's two for Section 508 and two for Section 255. You take those two and then marry them up with the other three chapters, and that's your rulemaking. If you're a federal agency, you take chapters one and two for 508 and the three technical chapters, and that's your requirements. If you're a telecom manufacturer, you take the two chapters that deal with telecom, and then you marry it up with the three technical provision chapters, and that's your requirement. So it's a little complicated, but that's kind of the overview of the scope of the rule. Chapter 3 deals with functional performance criteria. Chapter 4 and 5 deal with hardware and software. And Chapter 6 deals with support documentation and services. I just want to talk about uh, four of the principal areas where this rule will differ from the current standards that have existed since 2000. One, and this is a uh, kind of an overture to harmonization with international uh, requirements, we're going to be incorporating or proposing to incorporate the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines 2.0 uh, Success Criteria AA for websites and electronic content and software. So there'll be technical provisions for not just websites, but content, whether it's through an email or other attachment, as well as software. 
we're proposing to require real-time text functionality, which is essentially a modern-day equivalent to a TTY for people that are deaf or hard of hearing. It's text that's transmitted character by character as you're typing it. So you know, you're familiar with today's text messages where you're, you type a message and then you send it. This would be, as you're typing, the person is receiving it character by character. We would importantly specify the types of non-public facing electronic content that's covered, and then we'd further provide details about the compatibility between mainstream technology and assistive technology. I want to just highlight the one area that I think is going to be important for your consideration, and that's the electronic content, because this is an area that we're expecting to get a lot of pushback from federal agencies. The proposed rule, consistent with our current 508 standards, requires that a federal agency's public-facing content, meaning a website or documents or media or blog posts or social media sites, be accessible. That's not changing. But the proposed rule also clarifies the type of internal or non-public electronic content that must comply. So in addition to the public-facing content, like websites, Compliance would also be required for federal agencies' electronic content, such as an email or an email attachment, that constitutes an agency's official business or falls within any of eight different categories. Emergency notifications, an initial or final decision regarding an adjudication of an administrative claim, internal or external program or policy announcements, notices of benefits, employment opportunities or personnel actions, a formal acknowledgement or a receipt. So if you file a complaint and, and someone is an agency is sending back an acknowledgement, that would have to be accessible. Questionnaires or surveys, templates or forms, and education or training materials. So those are the types of content that we're proposing to address. I can't tell you every day I get emails and email attachments from other federal agencies that have scanned documents that are just images. And so I think this will go a long way toward addressing that. I know we're going to get a lot of pushback from agencies, so it's always important to tell agencies in a public comment not only what you like, but what you don't like. We always hear from people what they don't like. So if you like what we're proposing, it's really important for you to tell us that because we often don't hear that and we need to hear that balanced approach. Uh, as I said, the comment period will end May 28th. We'll hold two public hearings. One will be on March 5th in conjunction with the CSUN conference. Another one will be on March 11th during our access board meetings. That'll be available remotely also, so if you want to call in and testify, you can do that. And then we'll be doing a free webinar on March 31st from 1 to 2.30 just to go over the rule um, so that if you have any questions or want more detail about the rule, you can get that during the webinar. And all of this information will be on our website. The second rule that I want to talk about is transportation vehicle guidelines. This is an update of our current guidelines that we issued back in 1991, and we're dusting those off. We issued a proposed rule in 2010 and in September 2014, we submitted our final rule to the Office of Management and Budget, and it's there under review. I'll talk about what we proposed, because I can't say what's in the final rule, 
since it's not public yet. But the proposed rule contained revisions to the guidelines to address new systems like bus rapid transit, low floor buses, and advances in technology. Specifically, for your purposes, we included a proposed new requirement for automated stop announcements and route announcements in systems with 100 or more buses. And we in DOT have heard enough times that bus drivers don't call out stops, and so this is an effort to address that, so that it will be a dual requirement for both an audible automated announcement and a visual announcement. So people that are deaf or hard of hearing will see the visual announcement. People that are blind or visually impaired uh, will hear the announcement, and it'll be an automated system. It won't depend on a driver to you know, call out a stop that you, even if they did, you can't understand what they're saying. The third rulemaking is what we call public rights of way and shared youth pass. We had issued a proposed rule for public comment in July 2011, and then in 2013, we published what's called a supplemental notice of proposed rulemaking to include requirements for shared use paths, and by that I mean like hiker-biker trails. And this rulemaking is also the result of one of our advisory committees, the Public Rights of Way Access Advisory Committee. ACB, again, was a member of that committee. The proposed rule addresses access to newly constructed and altered public streets and sidewalks covered by the ADA. And in alterations, the requirements would apply within, but not beyond, the scope of a project. The guidelines don't apply to existing public rights of way, which is the vast majority of infrastructure in this country, except those portions that are altered. So if a sidewalk gets altered, or a curb ramp gets altered, then the guidelines would kick in. If it's an existing public right-of-way, our rules don't touch it, but program access requirements in the ADA would under the Department of Justice or Transportation. So it's not that it's not covered, it's just not covered by the access board. We cover, again, new construction and alterations. So I just wanted to touch on some of the provisions that affect people that are blind or have low vision. And these include temporary alternate pedestrian routes, detectable warnings at transitions to streets, accessible pedestrian signals, signalization at traffic roundabouts, and objects that protrude into circulation paths. So we already have requirements for protruding objects in the built environment, but this would apply them to outdoor environments as well. The guidelines don't require intersections to be signalized for pedestrians, except at certain roundabouts and channelized turn lanes. Instead, <coughs> They apply the requirements when a pedestrian signal is provided. So we don't actually require the installation of a pedestrian signal, but when a pedestrian signal is provided, then it has to be accessible. That's very consistent with all of the work that we do. We don't require parking spaces, but when a parking space is provided, it has to meet our guidelines. We don't require toilet rooms, but when a toilet room is provided, then the toilets have to be at a certain height and clear floor space. The pedestrian signals would be required to have a locator tone and a vibral tactile indicator of the walk-don't-walk walk cycle. In addition, we're proposing to require detectable warnings at curb ramps and at blended transitions, which remove tactile cues otherwise provided by curb faces. We're also proposing to require detectable warnings at certain pedestrian refuge islands, 
and at grade pedestrian-only rail crossings. We also sought comment on a requirement to provide detectable warning surfaces where a shared use path intersects another shared use path or a sidewalk. So if a hiker-biker trail intersects another hiker-biker trail, we are asking whether detectable warnings should be provided there and when a hiker-biker trail intersects a sidewalk, whether they should be required there as well. So please take a look at that. Guidelines also include requirements for pedestrian activated signals at roundabouts with multi-lane crossings and multi-lane channelized turn lanes. And they also call for tactile barriers or warnings along portions of sidewalks that are flush against the curb where pedestrian crossing is not intended, such as at like a light rail station where the vehicle is going to pull up and crossing the street isn't intended. The last rulemaking that I wanted to talk about is one that is planned but has not started yet, and that's on self-service transaction machines. This is an area where we're cooperating with other federal agencies. The Department of Justice and Transportation have some related rulemakings on this issue that we're cooperating with. So we developed a single set of technical requirements for what would make a self-service transaction machine accessible. We gave those to DOT to use in an associated rulemaking that they had under the Air Carrier Access Act for websites and automated kiosks at U.S. airports. So the technical provisions that are in their final rule, which they issued in 2013, are based on the provisions that we drafted. We also provided them to the Department of Justice. DOJ has an advance notice of proposed rulemaking that they had issued back in 2010 on equipment and furniture, and part of the rule would cover kiosks and interactive transaction machines. And so our hope is, is that there's going to be consistency amongst the agencies for the areas that they cover. DOT for the airlines, justice for machines that they would cover, and then we'll cover the rest. And so that was our hope with that. So in the future, we'll be developing a proposed rule based on those uh, requirements. What our plan is, is to do that after the comment period ends on the ICT rule so that we have some consistency with the approach that we're going to take with 508, because 508 applies to federal kiosks, like at a post office. So we want to have the same technical provisions apply to, to everything. I'll just touch on a couple of other things that we do that are non-rulemaking related. One is we work very closely with the Election Assistance Commission on the development of voting, voluntary voting system guidelines for voting equipment. And they had issued voluntary voting system guidelines in 2005, and they're in need of an update. They haven't had members, and now they do. So um, we're hoping that that moves soon. And then lastly, in 2012, there was a law passed called the Food and Drug Administration Safety and Innovation Act that gave us responsibility to convene a working group to develop best practices for making information on prescription drug container labels accessible to people that are blind or visually impaired. And we were very happy to get that responsibility. We created an 18-member working group composed of uh, advocacy organizations and industry. Again, ACB was a member of the group. And the group looked at alternatives, including Braille and large print and auditory technologies like talking labels and RFID tags. And it prepared and gave us its recommendations. And we issued the best practices one year after the, the law was passed. 
remember those best practices that are advisory only, and that was consistent with the law. But they've already been followed by several national pharmacy chains like CVS and Walmart and Walgreens. And most of those are a result of structured settlement negotiations by, by you, by <laughs> ACB and AFB through the good work of Lanny Feingold and her law firm. I just want to touch on two other issues while I have the microphone. One is if you want to find out more information about what we do and some of the work that we're working on right now, a good way to find that out is through our website, and that's access-board.gov. And um, we do a webinar series, one every month on built environment issues, and then one every other month on technology issues. They're all free, they're all archived, they're all very accessible. Um, you can get to those from our website. We have an online guide for our ADA and ABA accessibility requirements. We issued four animations on our online guide. The fifth one that's going to be coming out in about a month deals with protruding objects. So please take a look at that when it comes out. I think you'll be pleased. And that is all I have. I thank you very much for your time, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. That was David Capozzi, Executive Director of the U.S. Access Board, recorded during the ACB Legislative Seminar in February 2015. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.